have Sandra Gervis as our first <coughs> presenter. She's the author of 15 books and a longtime Columbus resident and a lifetime Ohio resident. Uh, a major aspect of her work has been on the Vietnam protests and their after effects. Particularly relevant to today's political situation is her recent nonfiction title, Where Have All the Flower Children Gone? She's going to read from that today. And it has a, it was five years in the making. It's a nonfiction title, so there was a lot of research that went into that. It covers all facets of the Vietnam era, from tracking the student protests and the conservative movements to comparing the controversy surrounding the Vietnam, uh, Vietnam to the Middle East. And her other novel, other book that she's reading from today, The Pipe Dreamers, is a fictional exploration of the late 1960s and the early 1960s. 70s. Um, mostly set in the small college town of Hampton, Ohio, which some of you may know. Okay, she brings to life a colorful, complicated era that made a huge impact on her collective memory and culture. Okay, let's pass around these, these quizzes and the answers there. You know the answers, we get a two free books because nobody's ever been able to get the answers. Yeah, but there's the front page and then the second page has the answers. Yeah, some of them have the answers on the back. They've been copied at different stages and whatnot. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the genesis of both my books, starting with The Pipe Dreamers, which is my novel. Um, and The Pipe Dreamers, actually, I wrote, uh, actually, I, I was a child of the 60s, actually more like a young adult of the 60s. I was in college when students were um, shot at Kent State. I was at Miami, which the fictional town of Hampton, Ohio, resembles Oxford, Ohio, a lot. Um, and I basically uh, wanted to write the book after uh, I was out of college. And people were kind of like, uh, nobody wants to read about a bunch of hippies. It's not what we want to hear. And I'm like, yes, but I must write this book. And to, to make a, a long story short, because I know I want to do a lot of reading today, um, I wrote a, lot, a good portion of this book in this library in, in, I think it was like the late 70s and early 80s. So it's nice for me to be able to come back here and read this published novel of mine, which was 20 years in the name. So a little bit note about that. And uh, Ruth pretty much explained uh, the situation behind the Flower Children's book. And the only other interest, which I will read from also, the other, only other item of interest about that book is that um, I was going to finish it in 2000, it was due to be finished in 2000, and September 11th happened, and a divorce happened in my life, and I never got to finish it on time, which was, you know, as sad as 9-11 was, um, it was a, in a way a blessing in disguise, because I finished this book after 9-11, just as the war, you know, the United States was getting into war with Iraq, so around that period, so that was kind of a good thing for this book, otherwise it probably would have never gotten business, had as much information in it as it does now. So um, let me get started with my reading. I'm going to start with my novel, The Pipe Dreamers. And this is a new one because I've read so much from the other one that uh, it's like all ruined, <laughs> which sounds kind of strange. I'm going to read a couple chapters from that one to begin with. On the evening of the May, and this is a, in 1960, I believe it's like the spring of 1969, just as the student protest movement was getting started. And this book basically traces the year 1969, 1970, which was the seminal 
year in the Vietnam protest movement. And um, my character gets involved in all aspects of it. But this is just as she was starting to get involved. On the evening of the main music fest, Julia Brandon sat with her sorority, wondering why she was there. The air was unbearably close, despite the cloudless pink streak dust. And Julia sweated, even though she wore a lightweight dress. Yet with her dark hair, sea forest eyes, and satiny skin, she looked cool and composed. But it was a deception, like most of her life decades. The music fest, which fell on the last weekend before finals, usually served as a barometer by which Julia measured her year. When she was a freshman, she regarded this tradition, in fact, the entire alumni reunion weekend, with enthusiasm and awe. She'd been a pledge, and the older girls seemed so, self, so polished and self-assured, handling the alumni beta gamma prize with charm and facility. When Julia was a sophomore, she was thrilled to be part of the festivities. She helped organize tea for alumni and their husbands, and led the sorority and its theme song during the music fest. She felt so proud standing with the BGPs, one of the top sororities on campus. Now in her junior year, Julie was less enthusiastic. She noticed chinks in the girls' behavior, barbed masks with delicate laughs, whispered comments not meant for all years. And she had a growing certainty that her presence in the sorority had been a case of mistaken identity. During rush week last fall, an outstanding freshman candidate a National Merit Scholar and former prom queen had been dropped from consideration when her sisters learned her last name was Goldberg. Would they have accepted Julia had they known about the stein Julia's grandfather had excised before debarking on Ellis Island? Which was why Julia's roommate Valerie Stasek was as refreshing as a spring charging through a desert. Valerie had been assigned to the room at the beginning of the spring quarter. Nancy, her predecessor and Julia's former big sis, had dropped out of the sorority due to family problems, BGP lingo for knocked up. Poor Nancy had been grist for the sorority gossip mill, although Judy, Julia refused to discuss the matter with anyone. Look, you're a sorority chick and I'm a hippie, Valerie had announced, plunking her carpet bag down on the empty bag, and the empty bag. And the goddamn administration thinks it can suppress me by putting me in a dorm full of, full of Greek, Greek boys. As long as you do your thing and I do mine, they can continue with their delusions. Then Valerie proceeded to plaster her side of the room with black light Peter Max posters and pictures of President Nixon grinning under, under the captions, would you buy a used car from this man? And Dick Nixon before he dicks you. Rather than being appalled or even slightly offended by Valerie's brash dress and language, Julia was fascinated. Valerie radiated spontaneity and humor, two things Julia's life lacked. Soon the girls became friends, although they never ate at the same time or went anywhere together. An unspoken agreement to maintain their separate lives made their relationship almost clandestine. Valerie was careful not to push her radical ideas on Julia, although she used any conversational opening to espouse her beliefs on ending the war in Vietnam, free love, and the legalization of marijuana and LSD. Then one day at the student center, she stopped Julia in the cafeteria line and introduced her to Avery. Julia had never met a man interested in a woman's mind before, although his satirical humor was often biting, and his discourses on Lenin versus Marxist philosophies and surrealistic versus street theater confused her, the sorority she at least understood. So when Valerie and Avian invited her to participate in an anti-Vietnam demonstration to be held during this main music fest, Julia gently refused. She told him of her obligation to sit with her sorority 
Besides, she asked herself, what did she have to gain by refusing to stand for the national anthem? A chance to antagonize the administration? To be ostracized by her sisters? The last thing Julia wanted was to make a spectacle of herself. Adrian volleyed a witticism about Julia's lack of commitment, and Valerie shrugged, her impish mouth a straight line, her stonewashed blue eyes downcast. Now, turning her attention to the crowd, Julia told herself she was foolish to feel guilty. She'd only known Valerie and Adrian two months. Relationships and loyalties in the sorority had taken years to establish. BGP wasn't perfect, but it was familiar. Be honest with yourself, Julia, she thought. Where would you be on this big, lonely campus of 12,000 plus bodies without your Greek security blanket of ready-made friends and dates? Not that the dates were much, mostly betas and sig apps who tried to slip sweaty hands under her skirt and sweater as soon as they were alone. But at least they reassured her that she was attractive, although she often wondered why they never bothered to get to know her first. It was a, there was a mating ritual, and Julia could nearly always anticipate the boys next year. Lately, it depressed her so much she confined her longings to a handsome profile of on the slant walk, or a nice build in the back row of class, where Julia rarely sat. In addition to being pretty and poised, BGPs were expected to maintain good grades, so they stayed in the front of the room next to each other, of course. From her vantage point at the topmost bleacher, Julia viewed a scene straight out of Norman Rockwell. Administrators, leading citizens from the adjoining village of Campton, and assorted honorees sat at the front of the steps leading to the portico of the Performing Arts Center. Behind the VIPs stood the singing groups and solos resplendent in long flower dresses or suits or matching robes. On the side lawn, lawn to the right was a band, clad in military-looking uniforms of red and yellow, the school colors. On the left sat the orchestra in somber gray. The audience, too, reflected Rockwellian decor. Alumni lounged in folding chairs or blankets on the grass. Some strolled through the full, adjoining full-blue formal gardens. Their children stayed close, undoubtedly discouraged by, from racing about by the heat. The rest, undergraduates, grad students, and an occasional professor, sat directly on the lawn below Julia. Only sororities and fraternities had the privilege of leisure and a total view of the goings on. Julia's little sis, Betsy, leaned over and said, it's beastly, isn't it? Betsy waved her program back and forth, a makeshift fan. I thought it'd cool down when the sun began to set. Julia examined the strand of what once was her perfectly straight, shoulder-length flip and side. I'd say the inhibitor's about 95%. She started to ask Betsy if she, if she could borrow her hair straightening iron when they got back to the home. But Lydia, president-elect of the sorority, shushed the roof, telling them the program was about to begin. Julia searched for Adrian and Valerie during President Carroll's opening speech about the greatness of the university and its tradition of excellence. She didn't spot them until just before the band struck up, the star-spangled again. They sat a few feet away from the bleachers while the audience rose en masse. In masse. Julia had a good view. You could see the five of them. Adrian, Valerie, an overweight couple with an American flag draped around their shoulders, and an aesthetic-looking blonde holding a sign bearing a blue and white peace symbol. Adrian, Valerie waved placards labeled "Stop the War" and "War is Not Healthy for Children and Other Living Things." With a mixture of relief and disappointment, Julia realized the demonstration was doomed. Not only did their distance from the portico render them practically invisible to the crowd, but they had been swallowed up by the standing singing audience. With a small number in four locations, no one would notice the demonstrators unless they really looked. Julia began to check out a groovy-looking guy a few rows below her with a blur of blue copper eyes. 
She leaned forward, astonished, as three Hampton sheriffs approached the protesters. Her first thought was, what are the police doing here? Valerie and the others aren't breaking the law. Yet two officers seized Adrian and the couple by the scruff of their necks, dragging them towards an unmarked idling van. The protesters offered no resistance. The blonde girl followed peacefully. But Valerie's reaction was different. Struggling violently, she kicked and shouted at the third sheriff, a heavy-set balking man. In his attempt to restrain her, he hit her in the face. A ribbon of steel flashed across his fingers. Iron knuckles, Julia realized in horror. She'd seen prison movies where guards used them to torture inmates. Little did she know that she'd fake being employed on her own roommate. Valerie's outcry alerted the audience that something was amiss. Heads began to turn and bodies shifted, making it difficult for Julia to see. But she couldn't miss the blood streaming from her roommate's cheek, nose, and mouth. Bright red rivulets ran down her neck, staining her flute's cotton top. And it wasn't cushioned like by celluloid, like film clips, clips of the Chicago riots, riots, or the makeup used in movies. It was real. The policemen shoved Valerie in the back of the van with the others, jumping in the driver's seat and slamming the doors. The van jounced down the gravel side road just as the band, band finished playing the last phrase of the Star Spangled Banner. Julia was stunned. The altercation had been so sudden and so cruel, and Valerie's and the others hadn't done anything wrong. Pointing in the direction of the retreating fan, Julia shouted, I can't believe it. Did you see what just happened? Several sisters stared at Julia. Betsy said, no, I didn't, but you better sit down. Everyone is looking at you. I don't care. Julia was filled with a helpless rage. Those, she wanted to say bastards, but didn't dare. Those cops just brutalized my friends for exercising their freedom of speech. This is America, not a dictatorship. They had no right to do that. Betsy laid firm hands on Julia's shoulders, forcing her to sit like the others. Calm down, Julia. If you're referring to that crazy roommate of yours, she probably asked for it. You should have requested a transfer. There are plenty of empty rooms on my floor. But Betsy hadn't, if Betsy hadn't been the closest friend of the sorority, Julia would have pulled a Valerie and told her where to get off. How dare Betsy talk that way about someone she didn't even know? Julia fumed while the Hayes Coral Lyrics stopped up, stepped out into the portico and began a tune about being on top of the world. Julia squirmed, conscious of sweat between her breasts and under her arms. Between the heat and the curious eyes of her sisters, she felt physically and mentally stifled. Valerie could be bleeding to death, and here she sat with these pampered princesses as if nothing had happened. And what of Adrian and the other protesters? What kind of treatments would they be receiving alone in the, in the hands of the police? There was a $100 bill stashed in her suitcase back at the door, in case of an emergency, her mom had said. It might be enough money for bail, and she couldn't think of a more justified use. So without a word of explanation, she clambered down the rickety metal bleachers. Julia, where are you going? Sued the Greek president, Lydia, demanded her haughty voice. But Julia didn't answer. As soon as she was out of sight of the baby sister, she started crying. She'd explain her abrupt departure later. Right now, she had to help and Amy. Flushed with exertion and triumph at her own resourcefulness, Julia rushed into the reception area at the Hampton police station a few minutes later. Thrusting her money at a skinny young cop, sitting with his feet on the desk, she announced, my friend Valerie is her. Here's $100 bail money for her and the others. The policeman swung slowly around on his chair. He leaned forward to examine Julia. 
His gaze traveled up and down the body, stopping at a stroke which rose six inches above her knees. You mean the hippie? She growled, not removing his eyes from Julia's well-shaped leg. Now what's a nice like girl like you doing with the likes of that? A blush crept upward from the flat collar of her dress, deepening the pink already on her cheeks. I have cash, she snapped, resenting his insinuating look. You take cash, don't you? Sure we do. As he smirked at her, she noticed his face was narrow like a fox with small, mean eyes. But we haven't set bail yet. Could be anywhere from fifty to a thousand dollars per head. But that's not fair. These people haven't broken the law. Ah, but they have, they know the law. Refusing to stand for our national anthem is an offense. And Judge Wilkins went fishing this weekend, so it's up to me and Sheriff Mitchell to, to make the determination. Belligerence was getting nowhere, so she tried to appeal to a sense of humanity. He was supposed to watch out for the public good, after all. Please give me, please give them a break, she pleaded. Valerie may be seriously injured. She needs a doctor. Glancing around, the, the cop lifted his dry, cracked lips and quietly suggested, then coming back with me, Magnolia Blossom. Give me some of that free love, and maybe we can negotiate. How dare he speak to her that way, as if she were a slut and not a member of the most respected sorority on campus. Who did he think he was? Tears of rage welled into her eyes. You owe, me, you owe me an apology, she cried. Now take my money and release my friends. She nearly shoved the hundred dollar bill into his Trying to bribe an officer of the law, eh? He snarled, plucking, plucking the money from her. Here's my evidence. You're under arrest for solicitation. He seized her arm. The harder Julia struggled to break free, the firmer his grasp became. You can't do this. She barely noticed the tears spilling down her cheeks. She could smell the chewing tobacco on his breath. Go ahead and fight me, flower child. I can add the charge for resisting arrest to your record. That'll explain the bruises on your pretty body after I pay a visit to your cell later. Now Julia was really scared. Until tonight, she never even talked to a policeman, now, and now she was about to be raped by one, and she barely let the boy she dated touch her. A door slammed open. They both jumped. Julia buried her, free, her face in her free elbow so no one could see her mortification. Excuse me, officer, a clear male voice spoke. But my friend and I couldn't help listening in on your conversation as we approached the station. I'm sure you're aware that sexual harassment either male or female suspects is a violation of section 201.4 of the Hampton Village Police Code and can result in immediate dismissal. Immediately, and incidentally, just how was this young lady breaking the law? Releasing his grip, the cop backed away. Julia peeked through her fingers and glimpsed a sturdy young man, a medium height, a few years older than she. He had a pleasant, open face and could have been mistaken for a professor, save for his frizzy, frayed bell bottoms, his faded, frayed bell bottoms, and frizzy tan hair tied back in ponytail. Tilting his head so his eyes met her, hers, he smiled at her as though the situation was just another minor inconvenience of everyday life. Julia wanted to run and hide behind him but restrained herself. She straightened up, trying to maintain her few remaining shreds of tattered dignity. The young man said to the cop, I'm Lewis Wexler, President of the Student Mobilization to End the War Committee to End the War in Vietnam. It's my understanding that you have some of our people in custody, specifically Adrian Shackley, Valerie Stasek, Sean Collier, Stu Maseko, and Laura Sturdivant. I'm here to discuss the nature and constitutionality of their internment. 
Julia remembered Valerie and Adrian talking about Louis Wexler. He was supposed to be brilliant, the plans of becoming a lawyer. He'd been a medic in Vietnam, and as a result of that experience, was totally committed to stopping the war. Julia had never met a Vietnam veteran before. Military service was not a part of her or her friend's lives. The policeman was obviously intimidated by Louis, for he kept edging towards the back of the room while Louis spoke. Yeah, right, he mumbled. We got him in the holding cell. I'll get Sheriff Mitchell. I'm just the deputy. Then he disappeared. Louis turned to Julia, his pleasant mask replaced by a look of anger. You should press charges. Sexual harassment is, harassment is heavy stuff, and it would serve that bastard right. I don't want any more trouble. Now that she was safe, Julia began to shake violently. She tried to conceal her emotions by fumbling in her purse for a tissue and wiping off the remaining mascara and eyeshadow. But thank you so much for rescuing me. What were you trying to do anyway, he asked. I'm here to bail out Valerie and Adrian, too. For the first time, she glanced at Louis' companion, a tall, muscular fellow. He leaned against the door, his face mostly hidden by a purple felt hat. Louis raised his eyebrows. Was he st still studying her sorority pen over breasts? That probably won't be necessary. He sounded amused. Valerie, Adrian, and the others were ushered in. They seemed fine, albeit somewhat disconcerted. Julia saw with relief that Valerie only had a cut on her cheek, which she nursed with an ice pack. But Julia recognized the burly policeman who accompanied them. This man assaulted Valerie for no reason, she cried, pointing to a piece of gauze wrapped around his right hand. He even hurt himself hitting her. The man, obviously Sheriff Mitchell, cast a disgusted glance in Julia's direction. You kids have all the answers, don't you? You think you know everything. Quickly unwinding the dressing, he revealed bloody, deep indentations in, on his hand, the obvious marks of human teeth. Everyone gasped, and Julia felt her stomach rise to her throat. Even Louis turned away. Your friend bit me, Mitchell continued, covering up his wound. But because she was resisting arrest, I tried to handcuff her. I struck her in self-defense. So the flash of steel had been handcuffed, not an iron knuckle. And Valerie hadn't been the totally helpless victim, after all. With dismay, Julia realized she jeopardized both her personal safety and positions in the sorority for a situation she hadn't fully understood. You mean I went to all this trouble, she began, and was stopped by the gentle pressure of Louis's fingers on the small of her back. Officer Mitchell, may I speak honestly? Louis didn't wait for an answer to his rhetorical question. We here appear to have a Mexican standoff of sorts. You've arrested three out of five of my people on unconstitutional grounds. Only Stu Mazzetta and Laura Sturdivant were wearing the American flag, flag in what you might consider an inappropriate manner. Although you could press charges against Valerie Stasek for resisting arrest, the reason behind, behind her internment might not hold up in court. Valerie hung her head as if ashamed, and Julia recalled her praising Mahatma Gandhi and his methods of nonviolent protest. But Randall Winfield and I caught your deputy, Julia, Louis's well-modulated voice turned steel, making sexually threatening actions towards, he looked at Julia as she softly supplied Julia Brandon, which is a hell of a lot more serious than a bunch of college students, kids demonstrating against Vietnam during a university-sponsored function. Sheriff Mitchell sighed, settling his heavy bulk at the desk, so recently vacated by his wayward deputy. Look, son. I don't really want to tangle with you or your organization, but the university is worried about trouble on campuses these days and gave us specific instructions to halt any unauthorized protests. 
He rubbed his tired looking face. Believe it or not, I'm not totally unsympathetic to your cause. The way you go about things, maybe, but I'm not sure I'd want to fight in that jungle war myself. Why don't you try working within the system? It's impossible and you know it, Valerie retorted, pressing the ice pack against her injured cheek. Look, I'm sorry I freaked out and bit you, but getting the word out to the kids is the only way we're going to accomplish anything. The administration refuses to recognize student mobilization and won't grant us the right to assemble. We could argue politics for hours, said Louis, but these facts, uh, the facts are we have an even trade. Drop the charges against these five people and we'll, look, we'll overlook the incident of sexual harassment. Julia shot Louis an alarm glance. She hardly wanted to testify in court, but Louis reached over and gave her hand a squeeze. You've got to understand about Deputy Adams, Sheriff Mitchell said. He lost his brother in Nam six months ago. So contact, contact with your friend Julia here, or anyone against the war, is like waving a Viet Cong flag in his face. We even leave him at, at the station whenever we go on campus patrol. He shook his head, a middle-aged man overwhelmed by society's honor arrived. When Ike was president, everything made sense. Now all of you, get out of here. Louie and the girl named Sean went with Louie's friend Randall to get their car, which was parked in an alley across from the street. The rest restrained their whoops of joy until they were 50 yards away from the police station. Stu hugged Laura and cried, far out, I was afraid we'd have to get married in the jail cell. Adrian bent over from his height of 6'1 and kissed Julia on the cheek. Oh, wow, I can't believe you actually came to bail us out. Won't your sisters have a shit fit? Valerie turned to Julia, her eyes deep pools of apology. I'm so sorry I created this hassle for you, Julia. I had no idea that you'd go to such lengths for me. Even though you're a sorority chick, you're a real human being. Thanks a lot. In spite of everything, Julia had to chuckle. Did that young kid hurt you, Valerie asked. With your, with your look sweet and innocent, Julia, you need to take karate. Holding on to her injured face, Valerie did a fractured kung fu imitation of golden hair fly. Hi-ya, kiki in the ball, she said. Julia released her tension over the incident with hysterical laughter at Valerie's theatrics. But she stopped when she remembered the $100 bill. That deputy took my money and he never gave it back. You didn't ask for a return the bail, Valerie demanded. So much was happening, I forgot. Once again, Julia was near tears. How will I tell my parents? What will I tell my parents? She hadn't thought of how Dr. and Mrs. Harry Brandon would react during her impulsive flight to help Valerie and Adrian. Say someone ripped you off, Adrian suggested. Besides, who cares what the old fogies think anyway? That pisses me off, Valerie scowled. I'm going back there and insist that, you, that deputy asshole return her breath. She began to walk back to the station. Julia grabbed her arm. Don't, Valerie. It's my money and we've had enough for one day. I'll explain I lost it. In a sense, it's the truth. Although her father would be annoyed, she would never frighten her mother by telling her the whole story. A blue 59 Chevy rumbled alongside them, and the driver, the one called Randall Winfield, leaned on the horn. Any of you hippies want to ride, he drawled. Julia vowed that Valerie and Adrian declined, while Stu and Laura climbed in the backseat next to Louis. Winfield glanced at Julia. Well, don't, don't say I didn't offer to get you out of this heat. Pulling off his hat, he shook out his hair, revealing his face for the first time. Julia had to force herself not to guess. He was the most beautiful man she'd ever seen. His magnificent red-brown mane tumbled to his shoulders in a shining mass. He turned towards Julia, his chiseled features alight in a radiant smile 
usually found only in a very young child. His eyes, which matched his hair, sparkled with laughter, but hinted at greater depths. Isn't this yours, Magnolia Blossom? He handed Julia her $100 bill. I encountered the good deputy as he tried to, tried to sneak out of the door while Louie was negotiating everyone's release. I reminded him we overheard your conversation, and that jogged his memory. He returns this to you with his, his sincere apologies and hopes there will be no hard feelings. That's not the only thing of his that's hard, Adrian roared at his own joke. Thank you, Julia, for barely managing words. Wind's quiet but effective. Sitting next to him in the front seat, Sean leaned over his lap with a proprietary air. You guys are coming to Sue and Laura's wedding tomorrow, aren't you? Oh, wow, I wouldn't miss that, Adrian said. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sure, Sean snorted in an unexpectedly genteel sound. Right in front of the entire theater department on the steps of the Performing Arts Center. She turned to Valerie. Three o'clock, where are your most far out deaths? Of course they don't want me there, Julia thought, a stab of disappointment. I don't even know them, besides I'm an outsider. You're coming too, Julia. Surprised, Julia looked up to meet Wynne's unflinching gaze. It was less of a question, more of a summons. If she'd have been a popsicle, she'd have melted right on the spot. She'll be there, Valerie promised. If it wasn't for Julia, we'd still be busted. Once you save someone's ass, you're the responsibility for life. Isn't that a proverb or something? It's either Chinese or in, in the Talmud, we observed. Not to take anything away from your friend, but I think we all kind of rescued each other, Sean commented. But the more the merrier. The Chevy puttered off. Aiden and Valerie offered to walk Julia back to her dorm. They'd invited her to get high at Aiden's to celebrate the end of ordeal, but as usual, she declined. A breeze cooled her sweaty clothes as she strolled through the brightly lit campus. Instead of worrying about her sorority or the near tragedy of Deputy Adams, she found herself wondering why they called Randall Winfield Win. And that's the first two chapters of my novel. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read um, something from Where Have All the Flower Children Gone? And then we'll take questions. Oh, correct? Okay. I'm going to, this is, there's a couple of things. Um, one is, I need to find this because this is printed out. Uh, this is a, um, it's one, one is, there's a couple of different segments about this book that I want to read from. One is answering the question, where have all the flower children gone? And the other one is called One Flower Child's Destiny. Destiny. And I think because the last one's um, kind of in, impacting, was very, made a big impact on my life, I'm going to kind of save that for the last, and then we can, we can take questions and discuss the 60s or any questions that you may have about the books. Answering the question, where have all the flower children gone? This is a generation that likes to regard itself as unique. And, be, and this is the question people ask me all the time. And I'm like, they're everywhere. <laughs> the answer in a, two words is they're everywhere, but this kind of explains it a little bit more. This is a generation that likes to regard itself as unique and beyond categorization. But based on dozens of interviews, it's become obvious that just as in high school, many offspring of the 60s and 70s, 1960s and 70s, fall into certain, certain classifications. So with apologies to Greeks, jocks, and geeks, follows as an informal taxonomy. However, the groups are hardly mutually exclusive, and people can switch from one to another as situations arise. The first group and the biggest group is called the moms and the poppets. This seems, generally, these are long married couples. They focus primarily on family, children, grandchildren, and parents. There is a growing trend of young adults who still live at home, are often found in a stable environment. 
The mamas and papas are mostly like their parents, steady, dependable, and seemingly unchanging. They can come from any political persuasion, from far left to all conservative. Ron Miller and Mary Ann Tabasco, who are profiled later in this chapter, have been married since 1971, libertarian and political gadflies, Eugene Gavadio, and, has, has, and that means that he was pretty much a conservative, had six children nearly 15 years apart who have been helping with his various causes since they were toddlers. Expatriates Steve and Simone Spring have made the same Toronto suburb their home since, home since the late 1960s and raised two hippie, hippie daughters, their words, one of whom plans to become a doctor, helping Native Americans, and another who works out in the outdoors and is in Canada. Rather than rebelling, their kids often adopt a parental worldview because their elders are so rational and forgiving. Even strains with different paths are successful, provided it's legal, of course. There's an underlying theme of basic selflessness here. Living in the same house for decades, the moms and papas make sure their children are well-educated, drive safe cars, and leave bedrooms untouched should Junior decide to return for a respite from the hard, cruel world. They often put themselves last, generally in terms of their own physical appearance and in the acquisition of material things. They, so they may not have a lot financially, but they could appear content, content and express few regrets. The second group that I discuss is better dead than with a gray head. California and certain parts of Florida seem to be magnets for this group. Just walk down any street in certain areas of Los Angeles, Miami, and Orange County and try to figure out the demographic. Near a wrinkled sag or sweatshirt bearing the logo, somebody loved you, can be found. Both men and women have vibrantly colored locks and are fit and seemingly cellulite-free. Only the eyes and texture of the skin may provide clues as to their real age. They may or may not have had kids, but chances are they may look close to the same age as their adult children, or even younger depending upon how, much, how heavily they invest in themselves. The, at the opposite end of the spectrum would include organizations like the Red Hat Society and the Crohn's claim to revel in their advancing years. With the gray hair, dowdy clothes, and out of shape figure, um, they they may be poster grandmas for who give the crap, but that's you know depends. Men are men generally less vocal, but but who hasn't encountered a fellow who can't show a little more of the rear than one wants to see? No, Clint Eastwood or should put on a or should put on a shirt over a sagging wrinkled belt. And what about older gentlemen who discreetly? He discreetly let one in public by lifting his left hip when he thinks down on his looking. Age is no excuse. The race against antiquity will only intensify. Over 50s make up over a fourth of our population, some 78 million souls born between 1948 and 1946 and 1964. By 2020, the 50 to 64 segment will have grown by 34%, those 65 and older by 23%. In comparison, those under 25 will increase just have decreased just 3%, and that includes a lot of people in the audience. <laughs> 25 and only 25 to 34 by 13%. And by, ironically, by that time, there will be zero growth in the 45 to 64 and the 35 to 34. Will decline by 9%. And then the next group is um, sleep and self-satisfied. These are people that has been defined in livable longevity strategy as people who live younger and those who, quote, floss regularly, own a job, socialize, have access to sex life, particularly when married, wear seatbelts, particularly in a large car, and earn more than $150,000 a year. 
the maximum lifetime reduction by disrupting the maximum, the maximum lifetime reduction, meaning that they'll live longer, is 26 years. Thus, they can survive over a quarter of a century longer than their less privileged counterparts. It is into this category that many of the sleek and satisfied fall. Rarely active in these social or controversial arena, they have concentrated on earning money and taking care of themselves. If they do become involved in a charity or in fact, it's for a personal agenda to impress the rough boss or meet the right people. They may have marched against the war in Vietnam. Protests were always a way to get great way to network and get to know members of the opposite sex, but may not admit to having any hands, depending on who they're talking to. Few of, it, few of them were interviewed for my book. They, they like to be seen, but generally not in print unless it's a society page. One might loosely have defined them as having been active in the cap and within the campus establishment, in the top Greek sororities and fraternities, or as homecoming queens or beauty queens. But that is an oversimplification, because many of these people were sincerely, sincerely committed to various causes and remained deeply involved due to strong personal convictions. Unlike other groups, their offspring either resist the parental lifestyle by outrageous and embarrassing actions, or become sleek and self-satisfied themselves, and thus a major financial drain. As parents who regarded babies as accessories, controlling what they wore and where they went to school, they must now deal with young adults who have de developed a mind of their own and rarely know how to develop, rarely know how to develop meaningful communication. The next group of flower children, the next general group, would be the question, questioning and questioning. It is in this rap rapidly expanding de demographic that many of the divorced and widowed fall. Many more of us are divorced now, Margaret Cox and writes in Time magazine. Middle age remains less forgiving to women than to men. No women's woman will ever change that. Our dads may have tuned out in their lazy or recliners, but fewer than dump, dump a first family for second wives and second wives. Women now, may now have means to lead dead marriages, but few go on to collect trophy husbands or start new families. Perhaps Carlton should talk to some of these women, some of whom were interviewed in my book, and, decline, and also include this author. Many women, especially over 50 and older, are perfectly content to be alone and explore the many options, both career-wise and personally, that are suddenly available to them. No longer responsible for cooking, cleaning, and the care of others, these women use their newfound freedom to live life to the fullest and achieve their goals, opening themselves up to new experiences, such as travel or taking along new projects. The same is true of men, but to a lesser extent. As Carson pointed out, males tend to remarry quickly or find someone to live with right away, regardless of the circumstances of the divorce or death. Children, even those in their 20s and beyond, can suffer. Not only have they lost their home base, but they must also contend with an extended family of stepbrothers and sisters who may be any age from their contemporaries and older to newborns. Single and married people fall into questioning and questioning as well. Often a major change, loss of a job or a beloved family member, or an illness incites self-searching. They may leave positions or cities where they've resided for decades for something totally new and different. At, uh, one of the people interviewed for this book, Matthew Kiernan, worked, in, worked as a film production and freelance editor, and he was contemplating establishing an art gallery in a city other than New York where he resided for over 15 years. However, it wasn't until after September 11th and about the prostate cancer that he finally took action, and the, and the gallery, his gallery opened in January, 20, January of 2003. 
people come up to me and say how amazing it is that I'm starting a business at my age, but I've been reinvented my life on more than one occasion, and I sure don't envy the guy who's going to retire in two years and has no clue as to what to do with himself. The next and last uh, group is stuck in the 60s. They are easy to spot, middle-aged fellows, now more than middle-aged, <laughs> with iron gray ponytails and blue, blue jeans and ladies with flowing hairs and Indian print garments. They usually wear sandals, often Birkenstocks, socks, no matter what the weather, and the scent of patchouli seems to follow them around. Chapter two discusses these pops of people such as the farm, a commune near Nashville, and the rainbow family of life, a loosely affiliated group of hippies around the US and elsewhere who gather at various points to commune. Holdouts such as Haight, Ashbury, and Yellow Springs, Ohio are included as well. One might and also encounter a person stuck in the 1960s, who wasn't even born then, but became enamored of this way of life. And now um, I'd like to do one more. Do we have time for one short? Okay. Last last thing, and then we can do questions. I do. Need to walk. Okay. This is this is also. I'm, you know, as sad as September 11 was, um, this is why I was kind of glad that I turned in my book so late, my flowers, where about the flowers children book so late. This was the life, this reading, this section was a life changer for me. Uh, this, this section of the book is called One Flower Child's Destiny. Myra Joy Aronson is a product of a new world order. Born on December 9, 1950 to Dr. A Abraham and Evelyn she had a nomadic childhood. She spent her early years in Elgin, Illinois, went to grade school in Madison, Wisconsin, high school in St. Louis, and college at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where many, like many of the friends and peers discussed in this chapter, she became politically and socially aware, although Miami was hardly the most volatile of US or even Ohio campuses, because I know Ohio State had quite a bit of uproar too. Although only about five foot one and a size two, Myra had presence and definite, definite opinions. A photograph from the April 15, 1970 Miami student shows her being dragged out of the campus Rossi building by two Ohio State troopers for resisting arrest during a takeover by student protesters. Rather than being a, being a smirk, her, her half smile is tacit acknowledgement that she's bigger than the huge guys who are hold of each arm, and perhaps also the flash of the camera meant, meant that she was going to be on the front page the next day. She was. The following year, her junior year, was spent abroad in France, further refining her love of all things Frankfield, from wine to clothes to the language, which influenced her taste throughout her adult life. In 1973, after completing some graduate coursework, Myra and her college boyfriend, Matthew Kiernan, who was involved in theater, decided to move to the larger stage that was Boston. It was an exciting time, recalls Steve Addison, now an anchor for the CBS Fox affiliate in Providence, Rhode Island. We worked together as a startup, the Boston Shakespeare Company. A group of, group of about a dozen people quickly became close-knit, close although everyone was living on something like $75 a week. But Myra and Matt seemed so much more sophisticated and mature than the rest of us. They were, always had wonderful parties and stimulating conversations when, when they were around. We were very concerned over the greater good, adds John Tavakia, a Boston lawyer, who was involved with the Boston Food, food Co-op with Matt and Margaret during that time as well. Our goal was to educate the community about the aspects of healthy eating and nutrition, but it also provided an excuse for some great cooking. It was through this group, this group and our contacts with Tavakia 
that Myra began to do the public relations work that would eventually lead several full-time jobs and a career in consulting. By the time Myra reached her 50th birthday, she had a life that many would have envied. So she decided to throw herself a party. Although she and Matt had broken up several years earlier, they kept in touch, and she was optimistic about the possibility of finding someone, says her sister-in-law, Nancy Aronson of Bethesda. Her sister got married at age 50. Myra tra traveled regularly to New York, Cape Cod, and the Berkshires, as well as London, Paris, and Ireland. Recently hired by Copyware, a software company in Cambridge, she felt she had finally arrived with Mark Pamela Lee, a pharmaceutical consultant who also lives in Cambridge, Cambridge, Massachusetts. She was decorating her condo the way she wanted, and we spent hours poring over catalogs and picking out light fixtures. If friends were currency, then one might describe Myra Aronson as wealthy. At her party, people came from everywhere, states and sister Ron Nancy. She had gay friends, married couples, kids. They were all ages, races, and creeds. There was even a conservative guy who was doing heavy-duty public relations for George W. Bush. So if Myra wanted to buy something cute on Newberry Street, she called her buddy, shopping buddy Cheryl Alpert to visit her favorite Shishi haunts like Bazarians and Bacardi's. With the figure of a young girl, Myra had plenty to choose from on the sale rack. She loved to bargain and serve cameras. Workouts were with another close friend, professional harpist Felice Pomerantz, at the Metropolitan Health Club in Boston. But Myra was generous with her also generous with her time volunteering at the Handel and Hayden Society, teaching at Emerson College, and helping friends and colleagues with their resumes and public relations efforts. Myra and Pamela almost often visited a temple bar in Cambridge called Headquarters by a group of regulars. We went there at least once a week, continued Pamela. She adored a good martini. Her, friend, her weight conscious, friend, conscious friends shook their heads in amusement at her qualification of the olives in her scully as a vegetable. It was, in fact, at the Temple Bar that Myra wrote her flight schedule on a cocktail napkin for Pamela, wanting to keep a friend apprised of her whereabouts. We always called each other airports, said Pamela. One time we found out we were in Detroit at the same time, and Myra arranged it so we got seated together. Guess where I am, Myra half-joked to Pamela as she sat on the plane. She was to arrive by Palm Springs a day early so she could relax and enjoy the pool. They chatted for a few minutes about how unusual it was that it was almost empty, Tuesday generally being a heavy business travel day, and the flight attendant asked her to turn off her phone as the cabin doors were being closed. We'll talk later, Myra said. At the memorial service at the Harvard Faculty Club, about a month, about a month after American Airlines Flight 11 crashed into the World Trade Center, Myra's sister, Elise Aronson Van Bremen, wondered what Myra would have said to the terrorists on her plane. I bet she would love to have tell us about her very last adventure. But they don't really want to think about the final minutes. They don't want to dwell on the fact that incredibly remains were found the, uh, at the site and how Nancy went to, into Myra's home to collect hair samples and a toothbrush. Her brother Jules stayed away as far away uh, for fear of inadvertently mixing his DNA with they may not want to know that a friend of Matt Kiernan's, who sometimes experiences such things, had a premonition that Myra Aarons would die inside an airplane, and even had a sense of what might have actually transpired. No one, no matter how charming or intelligent, or even in Pamela's word, with as strong of a sense of her own worth as Myra could do anything to change the course of events. One can only pray that what happened did so quickly and with a minimum. 
What, are, what is left are memories and mementos. Felice still wears some of Myra's clothes. The rest were given away to a chari charity for Hispanic women, many of whom are small bones. Pamela keeps the cocktail na napkin with the fateful flight schedule in a place of honor in her, own, in her home. Upon learning of Myra's death, Steve Addison's wife put of the water pitcher that Ma Matt and Myra gave them as a wedding press gift at, on the counter. She placed a sunflower in it, which so symbolized Myra, he says. Pamela refuses to go to ground zero. What good would it do? Myra will be with me always. I don't need to visit the place where she died. A day doesn't go by that Myra's family isn't reminded of a thousand ways of her passing, just like other, all the other families of those killed on that day. Some are willing to share their memories, but most find such an exchange too painful. When Matt, who lived in New York that time, at that time, was out west on September 11th and wants to talk to Myra, he goes for a walk in the park. I feel her spirit is there. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you guys talk. Yes. <laughs> questions, because I've talked out. Any questions or comments or? Yes. I went in the late, oh gosh, it was probably in 1975, 76. I, I did not graduate. I just took some graduate courses there in public administration. So by that time, um, I understand that during, the, uh, during that time here at OSU, there were some maybe student uprisings. Yeah, there were, oddly enough. It was like um, the war in Vietnam was like winding down a little bit. I mean, by the time, um, 1970, and the students were killed at Kent State. Really, any other protest, it just, it, it just took the teeth out of it, you know? But, but there was still protesting going on. And in fact, I remember when I was at, at leaving a class, and this is where they used to have the old, um, student, uh, the, where the student center was, it was a big plate glass window. Somebody threw a rock and broke the glass window. And they weren't rioting, they were just acting crazy, you know? And actually, Ohio State, you know, when I did my study at the different campuses, and the, what ha when I wrote actually I wrote an article about Ohio State years ago for the alumni magazine, Ohio State actually had among the most intense protests, more so than Kent State, and definitely more so than Miami. I mean, they they closed they closed the roads and they were like throwing tear gas. I mean, it was a miracle that nobody was killed. It was a miracle, and, and I could have read that saga. You know, now that I look back on, I kind of wish I read that section about Ohio State on Kent State. Actually, I don't write too much about Ohio State in my book. I just mention it. But, you know. Yeah, um, I know the oval used to be, all, all the pavements on the oval used to be brick. Yes. And it was because students were pulling out those bricks and throwing them. Oh, really? I never heard that. And, and because they were afraid someone was going to get hurt by that, they blacktopped all of them. Oh, that, that is interesting. I didn't and know that. It was just a few years ago that they took out this, that they undid the center uh, you know, walkway. Wow. <laughs> and, and I don't know, not many people realize it, but the oval was originally designed by the same man, and I can't remember his name, huh. who designed Central Park in New York. Right. Uh, I know who you mean. I know his name, too. And, um, I, and you know. I know it to the day. I remember it tonight. Very famous guy. Really? I heard, I heard that they built tunnels so that like teachers, professors could like run away from students if they were protesting. I've never um, heard that story. Used for maintenance purposes. They have wiring and pipes. Oh, 
Do students use the tunnels? I've never yes, heard. Yes, students don't usually use them. There are some extensions in the medical areas. Well, yeah, the medical center I know has tunnels, yeah. But in most places, there are a lot of tunnels. In most places, wow. Right. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I mean, it would all, yeah, it could see, yeah, I could see where that might be kind of dangerous. Really? Well, that was kind of a big deal at Black Coffee over at the time. It yeah, I don't, yeah. Security purposes. Right. I mean, I can imagine, you know, college students today and people, this must seem like, like, like totally alien. You know, when I read it, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I, that, that actually happened, but it seems so far away to me, you know, the, the, the student protests and, it's, the world is so different now, and it's, it's pretty amazing when you, re, when you revisit that and how different it, it really was back then. You know, they didn't have the, the, the I think that the, there's a huge difference, you know, the technology, and I think the war in Vietnam made a huge impact even on, I mean, I talked to people who, um, who are, worked in both Vietnam and Iraq military people, because I have a, a fairly, large connection with military because my son was in the service and I just know, of, you know, I've, I've seen it from all sides. And I think that even with the stuff that goes on in like the Middle East now, they're much better educated about how to deal with soldiers and how to deal with some of the problems and issues that soldiers face. And in Vietnam, it was so different and there was such a disconnect between the people that, that organized the war and the, and the soldiers and the students, and there was, there was no communication at all between any of these people. And I mean, I went down for my flower children book, I actually went to the LBJ library in Austin, Texas, and um, I remember, you know, looking through papers and, and there was all these white, older white men, and, you know, now they're close to my age, unfortunately, but, you know, I'm like, oh, the old white men are sitting around and they were talking about those hippies, you know? It's really interesting to see how different the world is now than it was in the 60s. Because there was a, there was just a, you know, you really, I know being a young person at that time, being, feeling very, very torn. And I'm, I'm, some of this conflict is, exists today, I understand, between the values of your parents and the values of your peers. And it, you were either one or the other, but you couldn't be both. There was no, there seemed to be, at least from my point of view, no middle ground, which is really why I wrote the Pipe Dreamers, I mean, I wrote The Pipe Dreamers because I, I had to, I had no choice. Uh, it was something that I had to, to recreate and, I, and I'm glad I did even though it took me years and years and I went through a lot of trouble to get it published and, and I'm glad I did because it's there and actually they use it as a textbook. One of the professors uses a textbook down at Miami. It's not required reading but it's optional reading. And The Flower Children book I wrote because I felt that I hadn't covered everything. I wanted to cover some of the aspects of the, of the 60s, the people that were living on communes today, uh, some of the conservatives. 
I was really lucky to go be able to go to Washington before 9-11 because I had access to a lot of conservatives that I would have never had access to. So it's, it's been quite, a, quite an interesting uh, research, quite an interesting long, strange trip, so to speak. Um, any other questions about the 60s? Why are my books back there for sale? Uh, the, the novel is $10, and the, the other book with the, with the novel is, it would be 20 so if you're interested. If not, that's okay. If you want to look at them, just check them out or ask me questions. Thank you for your time. <laughs>